if women could save heterosexuality and make it like healthy, like on their own, like they would have done it by now because they are trying. Greetings, hello, happy new year, and welcome back to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we attempt to use the gift of feminism uh, to understand what's going on, but like, frankly, that's having some diminishing returns. My name is Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dog. Adrian, what are your thoughts on um, what's going on writ large as an expert on the subject? I mean, yeah, I mean, the weather, the kind of weather we're having, <laughs> my, my God. Sure is foggy here in San Francisco. <laughs> Literally the last uh, non-controversial statement that can be made about what's going on right now. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, no, I mean, we're recording this on January 6th, a date that apparently does not live in infamy for half the country. Apparently lots of people have forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Apparently memory hold um, entire coup d'etat or memory holes contain multitudes. I'll say that for them. Um, yeah, we just kind of, uh, we're just going to blaze through it. I love how witty you are in the apocalypse. Um Sorry, you said blaze through it, and like my children's favorite show is Blaze in the Monster Machine, which is like I don't know some sort of CIA apparatus to teach physics concepts to children. But its tagline mm. is "Let's blaze!" So I have like children running through my house screaming that, and, and uh, it's funny. It's just a little funny. So that's like th- that tagline is like five minutes away from being like part of a subreddit that then like ends up with someone shooting up a pizza joint or something like that. There are no more nice things to be had in this world. It's uh, it, it will all get contaminated. Your scenario was darker. I was just picturing a bunch of ten-year-olds smoking weed, but like you, you like you do, took oh. it to the next level. <laughs> ten-year-olds smoking weed is the future liberals want. I, I don't know about. I can't speak for all liberals, but this one does. Oh my god! Um, since we're talking about the feminist mystique in this episode and its applicability to the realities. Spoiler alert: We're talking about the feminist mystique in this episode. Spoiler alert: We have friend of the podcast Moira Donegan making a victorious return to discuss her like super relevant obsession with Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Of course, longtime listeners will remember Moira from a previous episode of The Feminist Present, but maybe we should say a few things about her just for those who are new to her work. She's one of the most spectacular, I think, thinkers and writers about feminism at the moment, has written for just about anywhere. Mm-hmm. I believe right now she's mostly publishing The Guardian, it seems to me. That's where I sort of see her her bylines the most. Uh, is also famous for having written the essay, I created the shitty media men list, and relatedly creating the shitty media men list. <laughs> But, like, I really like the way you framed that because that emphasizes just how good that essay is. It's um, fantastic. Like, a purely craft and sentence level. It's just a fucking great essay and a great place to start on Moira's work. Yes. And so, yeah, I, I think she's just a wonderful colleague and wonderful friend. And I'm really excited we get to talk to her. Hall of Fame friend of the pod talking about the feminist mystique in this episode. But I was listening to the rough cut and, you know, reviewing the book as just, like, domestic hell was flaming all around me you know like on the day that we recorded this episode with Moira I had one kid puking at home today I have a kid in school a kid in daycare which was the backup plan to the school that closed and I have already received a phone call from the principal of the kid who's at school (laughs) so like my parasympathetic nervous system is just never going to be the same after any of this is pretty much it but the good news is the call from the school this morning was just that my kid bumped his head not that his entire classroom was being shut down due to covid hashtag 2022 like thank god it was only head trauma this is what this is exactly my point like my blood pressure just spiked as soon as i saw the number on the phone it spiked further when i learned it was the principal calling me and then it just plummeted back down when i learned my kid only had head trauma (laughs) like that's the reality parents are living in right now yeah oh my god i felt bad for you that you had to take time out from what sounds like a one among an increasing number of kind of uh, chaotic days ceaseless emergencies yeah but it, it actually provided us kind of a nice intro into the feminine mystique which is really about what happens when shit goes really wrong, even for the most privileged, overeducated women. Like, exactly. how could I not right. be patient zero for that right now? 
<laughs> Which, you know, is both, I think, what it's been criticized for, yes. including by, you know, the late Bell Hooks, who we mentioned in the episode. Rest in power. But it's also kind of, it's, it's strength. The text really drives home the point that this problem does not go away if you throw money at it. Yes, yes. It is a not primarily or not solely economic problem. Right. And I, th I think that th there's something very powerful about that. And enduring about that, yes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, maybe we should say a few words for... So if there is a listener out there, maybe there's one who has never heard of Betty Friedan. Yeah. There are some, and we want to be inclusive of them. But is, but is subscribed to a podcast called, called The Feminist, Feminist Presence. Presence. I mean, I have friends, you know, Adrian, who, yes, I think there might be some people. So go off, Professor. Let's assume. Let's assume. Do you want to walk us through uh, this book and its, its impact? Oh, that was an elegant dodge. That was an elegant dodge to just hand that back to me. Sure. I mean, I can do so... it too. So... <laughs> Well, Moira does it best of all, which is why you should keep listening. But in sum, I cannot remember when it was published. Was it published in the... 63? Okay. The that's, Feminist Mystique was published by Betty Friedan in 1963. It has been the source of much controversy among third wave feminists for its tendency to overlook problem problems. Lesbianism is not a problem. Successes like lesbianism and also greater problems of race and class. But it was also a very salient critique for its time of what she called the problem that has no name, which is the discontent experienced even by the most privileged of women, even under the most quote unquote desirable of circumstances after they got real educated and got their ambitions for like public life up real high, only to be like thrust back into diaper changing and unceasing domestic labor. Not that I have any thoughts or opinions about that at this very moment. What would you add to that summary, Adrian? That sounds, I mean, I'm sorry I put you on the spot, but that sounds exactly <laughs> right. It's, a, it's we'll, we'll go into it in the episode a little bit about how it originated really as kind of a survey of Friedan's own mm -hmm, cohort. Mm -hmm. Her college classmates. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. And so that it's also a portrait of a particular, a particular generation mm -hmm. that found itself in the middle of kind of what we today would call backlash politics, yes. where they had had some set of expectations for their future and we're finding those slipping away the other thing to point out i think about the book is uh, and, and we again talk about this quite a bit in the episode but it's an unusual book for friedan to some extent mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. episode i mentioned that i was struck by how little the economic really ends up mattering friedan's point is basically that even if you leave economics out of it, the problem remains. Of course, we would today say that you can't take the economic out of it, mm -hmm. as our guest Maura Donegan points out. Friedan doesn't do that in her other work. Mm -hmm. But this is a pretty unique text, and you can sort of tell that its genesis kind of influenced what it ends up saying about inequalities that really are just about gender, where socioeconomics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really don't suffice explain it uh, anymore. You know, as you were talking, I was remembering one of the most interesting things that surfaced from my like re-researching this book, which is that Friedan was publishing a lot of the same ideas that Gloria Steinem was publishing around mm -hmm. the same time that she was publishing them. And for various reasons, which we can get into on another podcast, Steinem's were sort of more enduring. But I think it is historically appropriate to emphasize Friedan's importance to this discourse. She, she holds a critical part in it, even if we are honest about the shortcomings of the work itself yeah can i also just i really need to get something off my chest and like you are the only person who's gonna care so like you mentioned bell hooks a minute ago rest in power and i've been watching as i'm sure you have you know the sort of twitter eulogies for bell yeah. hooks and the great joan didion who passed away in the same week it, it it's been a rough time you know here and on eve Earth. babbitts let's not forget eve babbitts let's not um <laughs> and betty white <laughs> Let's never forget Betty. No one will ever forget Betty White. The other, the other Betty. <laughs> the other Betty. <laughs> I just had this feeling rising in my throat as I watched people cherry pick their Didion and Hooks quotes like for the same tweets where I was just sort of like, I didn't want to get ornery like this on Twitter on that day, but I was just like, oh my God, if you are putting Bell Hooks and Joan Didion in the same sentence, you are telling me that you have never read either of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also like there's an eagerness, maybe this is another podcast, there's an eagerness to claim Joan Didion as a feminist that I have oh my God. some yeah, I was feelings about. <laughs> I mean, as incidentally with Joan Didion, I mean. Yes. 
very explicitly. It's in the White Album, right? Where there's these extremely negative things to say about the women's movement. She was monoculture, not counterculture. And so to see people kind of fold her in with true countercultural thinkers like Bell Hooks, and I would also say Eve Babbitts, you know? Yeah. It was just a little vexing. And I love Didion, you know? I love her sentences. Eve Babbitts dedicated, I believe it's Eve's Hollywood, among other things, to the Didion Duns for having to live the life I can't, which I think is just great. Like, Just one of the sickest burns in history that I'm so glad great. you just resurfaced. Yes, totally. I mean, I just, I, I, I revere Joan Didion. You know, I honor her contributions. And the woman was not a feminist, you know? And we don't get to claim her as like a foremother of a movement that she really only criticized. I mean, we might want to do an, an episode around Maybe that. this is bridging into a bigger discussion. Yeah. Those uh, essays are not, I don't think have aged very well, but it's, it's worth sometimes thinking about why something ages so poorly and some of it ages beautifully you know like i there's there's so much of her work that i, I mean not the ones on the women's movement i would say no 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 not I'm a sentence saying, in that i would be like oh joan totally please. totally totally all i was saying is i'm not prepared to throw out her work wholesale just oh, because no, i Jesus, don't agree with no. her politics but you were not gonna tweet out we tell ourselves stories in order to live hashtag girl boss jesus christ hashtag girl boss gatekeep gaslight i mean come on as people are printing this like list of her this is gonna have to be another discussion because i have so many feelings just on her famous packing list alone with the leotards and oh, the, yeah. like you know clothes whatever there's there's just a whole story of fat phobia ableism and racism in that packing list <laughs> not to mention classism so Anyway, maybe that's another discussion we're going to have. Yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe we should tell, let the good folks know that, that that's kind of the theme we're going to go for in the next couple of episodes. You'll know that mm-hmm. we... Mm-hmm. Long-time listeners will know that we have abandoned, recently abandoned our, our uh, season structure. Um, mm-hmm. But for the mid to near future, we are looking to just read and to talk about books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a feminist that's, book club. That's what we do best, yeah. And to do it really in the spirit that you'll hear in this conversation, and I hope it resonates with you, well, we're really trying to find things of use, mm-hmm. even where we disagree with the text, and to maybe also avoid texts that are straightforwardly just awesome, right? I think that's the other thing. For yes, me. it's not discussable if it's just awesome. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's a boring discussion. I'm happy to give you recommendations, and I'm happy, yeah. I'm sure Laura is too, about what you should just read and like put a check mark behind every word. But listening to us putting a check mark behind every word is not... It's not exciting, I don't think. And and so we really want to look at, I mean, thankfully, feminism has produced... A disagreement or two in its works time. ...works that have something, but that have have moments where you really are like, oh, I really wish you hadn't gone there, you know? Like you said, I mean, we could talk about Betty Friedan, mm-hmm. we could talk about Simone de Beauvoir, for instance. When either of them utters the word lesbian, you're like, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is not going to be good, is it? Yes. Um, I mean, know, I so. would say, if I were to TLDR this information, I would say that we will be discussing some new books that are coming out this year, and we are also interested in, in revisiting some old feminist texts that are always relevant and always discussable. One thing we should invite people to do, though, is uh, to tweet at us and recommend some stuff oh my god please i think people know what our sensibilities on this podcast people know what they like for us to discuss and what we're maybe not as keen on or we're just not as good at or not as informed about and if there's something you'd like us to engage with or you think would kind of broaden Mm -hmm. our horizons or that you'd just love to see throw it at us and see what we what kind of a swing we take at it uh, let us know. Mm-hmm. The ones we've already committed to are ones that we, we're rereading now. But there are a couple that I was like, huh, mm-hmm. it'd be fun to just read it for the first time, honestly. So that is our Artful Dodge not committing to anything, which is the name of the game in 2022. God, one of my best friends texted me yesterday this like really awesome performance review structure that her boss had just offered up to her, which I thought was like really thoughtful and excellent. And one of the questions was something like, what would success this year constitute for you? Like, what does success look for you this year? Oh. And in the most like visceral, primal way, an answer rose from inside me that was just like, survival. <laughs> like, if 
I'm still alive. Yeah. There's that line in the um, in that Christopher Isherwood adaptation, A Single Man, where Colin mm, Firth so looks beautiful. at himself in the mirror and goes, "Just get through the goddamn day." And I'm like, "That's uh, I'm I'm feeling that I'm I'm feeling that these days." That's where we're at. For you out there, thank you for tuning in. Congratulations on your continued survival, which is no small feat these days. We're gonna take to the bridge. Very excited to get to talk to you about this, and I'm so glad Laura can join us. How's the puking? Yes, for dramatic effect. <laughs> dramatic effect you have a harried working mother coming in late and unprepared um the puking is okay uh i am here until my son runs in and tells me that he has puked again or that he has puked so much that he's now hungry so we'll we'll have an element of suspense waiting to find out which one it will be <laughs> thank you for squeezing me in uh, during this like hectic time i appreciate it i mean this is what i am most excited about doing today it was the puking that was uh not so much on the calendar uh <laughs> What were you going to say, Adrian? But Laura, isn't this the isn't this in some way the more meaningful thing? Cleaning up. It's you. an important <laughs> point that you make, and and I've had a lot of. It's really fulfilling putting puke bowls in every room human of your barf, house just... and cleaning them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, human barf is like really fulfilling. In a way, a career as a podcaster never could be. No, no, no. I mean, it's clear in the puke up to my elbows that this is God's purpose for me, you know, and that I am meant to follow it as a sacred vessel for his love. So, yes, my husband works so hard. Bless him. I love him so much. And uh, I'll try to take a minute out of my real vocation of mothering to talk about feminist literature today. Yeah, he, he puts all this work in at the money factory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what people do. <laughs> It's really funny because like he would be the first to note that I am the breadwinner in our house. And uh, so I am also going to note that on the record because I am just that petty. Do it. Nonetheless, let's talk about Betty Friedan. Is she still yeah. alive? I don't think she is. She's, She's not. not alive. She's not. She died in 2006. I Googled this today. So Moira, this idea emerges both from Adrian and I and my ceaseless hunger to talk about feminist literature and because you were sending some pretty provocative tweets about Betty Friedan earlier in 2021. Provocative, you know, in the sense that like Adrian and I talked about them, perhaps not provocative in the shitty media men list way. Uh, but like, <laughs> tell us a little bit, like what led you back to her and this book? Like you've been on a second wave journey. Tell us about it. I have been on a second wave journey. You know, what I think is really interesting because I had not actually read this book since high school. I'm holding up my copy of The Feminine Mystique for our listeners. Same, same. Yes. I have not read this book since high school. I read it in high school. And at the time I had come to it with the understanding that it was outdated. Right. Mm. So I read it and I think I sort of noticed its famous flaws. Friedan presents this book, The Feminine Mystique, as a book about American women. It is actually a much more narrow project. It is a book about white middle-class women in the post-war era. Uh, so if you're looking for information about the lives of any other demographic, you're not going to find it in here. It's almost as if other kinds of women don't exist. I think I had thought of Free Dan as being homophobic because of that famous comment she made about lesbians in the feminist movement, referring to them as the lavender menace. <laughs> yeah. uh, and her homophobia goes way deeper than that. She speaks in pretty pretty like shocking terms about gay men and, and male homosexuality in particular, but really homosexuality in general. I think it's like a foggy morass descending upon American life is her phrase. I mean, that's how I feel most of the time, honestly. <laughs> it's like a pretty good weather description of the Castro. Yeah. <laughs> and um, for a book that is so much about work and focuses so much on work, there's kind of shockingly little discussion of money both because she's dealing with the demographic that has attracted her interest is, you know, people who are materially comfortable. Yeah. But her approach to the problem of those women's lives is entirely psychological. It's about how to make them personally fulfilled, which is a much more like kind of slippery goal fulfillment. It's harder to define 
it's harder to achieve. It's harder to measure. Though to her credit, she uh, does try. It's a much more academic book than I think people give it credit for or expect to be when they pick it up. Mm. In terms of why now, something I was really interested in when I picked this up again more recently is like how she's writing this. She began writing it in the 50s. Feminine Mystique was published February 1963. She took about five years to write it. It's deeply researched. It's really expansive. It's very ambitious. And over and over and over again, she's talking about our mothers had it better. She's talking about feminism as it used to be, which is very interesting when you come to it as I did, understanding like, okay, this is the book that started the second wave feminist movement. She's talking so much about feminism, how its ambitions, how it was betrayed, how it was derided, how feminists are mocked, and how they had a vision that she saw as having been very ameliorative and noble that has since been sort of abandoned. Uh, It's a story about what happened really in the post-war period very abruptly when women who had been going to work, who had been getting educations, who had actually been making these massive strides into the workforce in the 1930s and 40s suddenly went back. And the age of average marriage dropped down. The average age of marriage when she published the book was 20. The uh, median age of marriage was actually 18. Fewer women were going to college. Wow. Fewer women were graduating from high school because they were all getting, dropping out of high school to get married. And those who did go to college were going to college, according to Friedan and according to you know many of the academics she interviews, specifically with the purpose of equipping themselves to become better wives and mothers and to find a man to marry there. Yeah. It's a book about having won your rights and having won this more expansive possibility for yourself and then having lost that, having those rights taken away, having those possibilities eclipsed. So why now is because I think we're in a very similar moment. Yeah. COVID drove a lot of women out of the workforce. It continues to eviscerate people's access to childcare. And we are looking at the end of Roe v. Wade. So I think there's an analogous sort of historical moment going on here where we are seeing women being forced back into the home and uh, being denied the freedom and the opportunity to be things beyond Mm -hmm. mothers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I fully agree. In rereading it, I had repressed how much of a text about a backlash it is. Like, I thought of it as a critique of the traditional American family. It's no such thing. It's saying the traditional American family is 18 years old by the time this comes out. It can barely vote, right? It's a post-45 development, a rollback. Although I suppose it's unclear, right? Like, perpetrated by politics, by kind of Madison Avenue, et cetera, et cetera. That's a little less clear, but it's definitely, it's about a retrenchment of patriarchy about, you know, I had sort of, I think I lumped it together with Jermaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, which I think sort of says, oh, the, the suburbs are about traditional gender roles. And I really liked the way Friedan never falls into that trap and says, like, this is not traditional, right? The same way that we're not going back if we overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going forward to something truly terrifying, right? Like, this is not, it's not about a return to anything. This is a forward-driving project of social repression, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And I totally agree with you that, to me, felt... Um, felt incredibly timely because, I mean, we're in the middle of a 40-year backlash, right? And, like, it's really helpful to sort of have someone put numbers on that and to really think through what that does psychologically to people, right? I thought that was mm. that was terrific. I love that you landed that, Adrian, on, like, what that does to people psychologically because that clearly was a central concern of Friedan's. And one of the things that really jumped out at me on this like reread and re-research, which like you, Moira, I had not read this since high school. And I discovered when I was looking for my copy that I'm pretty sure I left my copy in my parents' house when I left for college, <laughs> which I think is like a rich detail yeah. of like what an evolved feminist I thought I was at age 18. But one of the things that really jumps out at me as we're talking about it now is the role of this sort of overeducated white woman mm-hmm. and how she emerges in this research. And I noted that like this research began out of Friedan kind of surveying her college classmates from Smith. I think the fact that she attended a women's college in one of the Seven Sisters is like very significant here. And so her survey begins explicitly with college-educated women in the 50s who were becoming like a class of their own and then thrust back into domestic labor, into the private space of the home. And it just evokes so like the problem of overeducation in this context feels really 
problematic to me, provocative to me. I'm thinking of, of cultural figures like Betty Draper, you know, sitting in her kitchen with her, was it Bryn Mawr education, being like, I speak Italian. <laughs> I have no one to speak to, but I can do it in multiple languages. And so so the psychological entrappedness yeah. that she's describing feels so related to being kind of like trained for an intellectual life and then thrust into a domestic one. Like what stands out about that to you, Moira? Yeah, I loved her chapter on women's education because she talks about how women's education was a great push of that late 19th and early 20th century first wave feminist movement that she's calling back to. And I looked it up and it's about like, we are further now from the publication of this book, I believe, than Betty Friedan was to women's right to vote. Uh, the 19th Amendment mm. passage. So it, it was not ancient history to her. It's a good historical sectioning. It was, you know, this was her mother. And she, in fact, grew up in Peoria, Illinois, the uh, snow globe dead center of middle America, watching her mother, who had been a journalist before she was born, sort of struggle to adapt to this smaller life that motherhood had required of her, right? Very similar to Gloria Steinem's story, too. Oh, really? Like, watching a very unhappy, very talented mother struggle, yes. And then, you know, Betty grew up, she went to Smith, she was a very gifted student and got this great scholarship to start on a psychology PhD at Berkeley. And she tells this story of walking in the Berkeley Hills with her sweetheart, who says to her, it'll never work out because you got this great fellowship and I didn't. And if you're going to advance more than me, we can't be together. And she dropped out. She stops at the master's, right? She doesn't get the PhD. She does not get the yeah. PhD. And she goes back to New York. She doesn't wind up marrying that guy. She marries another guy. But that is the beginning of sort of the closing of her potential. Right. And the the repetition of that sort of self-betrayal that she had seen her mother also make. So it's interesting, Laura, that you bring up the Smith study because she does begin just with her own peers. Yeah. It's for their, I believe. Her classmates. Yeah. I believe it's for their 10 year reunion. So they're yes. all in their 30s. And she's, 15th reunion. 15th, oh, 15th, 15th reunion okay. in 1957. So this is the class of 1943 speaking in 1957. So they're all like 37, right? Yep. And their lives have shaken out post-graduation to be what they're going to be. It's enough distance from graduation for them to be settled. And these were women, sorry to interrupt, these were women who were attending college during the war too, right? So like had a specific expectation and availability to attend college attached to that that was then ripped right. away. <laughs> right. Like Pre-GI Bill, for instance. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They had come from a few decades of women's advancement, right? They had probably had some idea in college that their lives might be different and bigger than their moms had been. And then after the war, they find that their lives are even smaller. She does talk a little bit about, not a little bit, she talks extensively, as Laura mentioned, about the disjoints between these upper-class women's educations and their lives. But also, she notes how women's education was work. She does this great survey of yep. college professors and uh, women's college presidents who are talking about how they are trying to scale back on science and mathematics. They're trying to scale back on the poetry and the romance languages and the politics and teach women more about cooking. They're like, sure, they had home economics in high school, but what if we give them home economics again with uh, more ingenuity and uh, weirder recipes this time? And they're trying to solve this problem of the disjoint between women's capacities and women's educations and women's lives, not by expanding the possibilities for women's lives, but by constraining the possibilities for women's education and keeping their minds from developing in a way that would be incompatible with sort of the, the life of self-abnegation and domestic drudgery that lives ahead of them. Oof. It's fascinating. The survey, of course, is a really interesting and powerful tool because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, some of this is based on intergenerational comparison and the insides of families, right? And there is a, you know, we've talked about psychology quite a bit, but of course the whole gambit of the book is no, it's that- it's sociological, yeah. These are not individual psychologies. These are not individual dissatisfactions. Dissatisfactions are 
communal. They're shared not by every woman in America, right? That's her mistake, but certainly among a certain set of women that, you know, had experienced a, a widening of possibilities previously. I'm reminded there of the Mary McCarthy novel, The Group, right? Oh, Which has God, a very yes. similar structure. Yes. Right? Which is like, I mean, it's just eight people and it's fiction, but like that gesture of like, these things are linked. These dissatisfactions are linked and they repeat, they repeat certain tropes. You know, I guess that's where we get away from psychology and we get to consciousness, right? The fact that like that your individual psychological state is not about you as a person necessarily. It's also about where you fit in and where society tells you you fit in. And if we're talking about institutions, it also looms large to me that the group describes Vassar graduates, right? Like, again, we see the seven sisters and the position of the seven sisters. Full disclosure, I can't help but speak on my mother. My mother is a Wellesley College graduate who graduated in 1964 as one of four chemistry majors in her class. And like everything that we're talking about is reminding me quite a bit of her. And in particular, what she tells me about Wellesley, I remember a lot of this discussion came up around the time that movie Mona Lisa Smile came out. And uh, to the Lavender Hayes point, my mother and her generation of Seven Sisters graduates were not at all excited to permit the possibility either that lesbians were in the Seven Sisters now or that they had ever been there. Like (laughs) the discussions I had were very eager to erase that reality and paper over it. But it's also really interesting that, that, like, especially in my anecdotal discussions with my mother, but also supported by other research, the Seven Sisters were a husband-hunting terrain, right? Like, what I hear about Wellesley was it was a good place to meet guys from Harvard and MIT, and there was, like, a bus called the Fuck Truck, probably wasn't called that in the 60s, but, like, that runs between the three campuses pretty much for eugenic purposes. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting and manipulative in a broad cultural and sociological sense to throw the most resourced, highly talented white women into this terrain and be like, learning is cool, but like it would be ideal if you were engaged by Christmas of your junior year. Like, And I've looked through my mom's yearbooks. Like she told me that was the goal. Like it was ideal to be engaged by Christmas of junior year so that when your name was printed in the senior yearbook, you would be listed as like Miss Mrs. Adrian Daub. <laughs> A fate I wouldn't want to wish on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Adrian, I think you and I could have had like a pretty good time in like a sham marriage in those days. Like that's that's fan fiction I could definitely write. We'd like move to the West Village. Yeah, exactly. And oh, Adrian. Yeah, oh, Laura. They're novel. so quirky. <laughs> she seems to be hanging out with that woman Moira a lot. Are they sisters? Like... <laughs> anyway, I digress, but I'm very interested in this. This is like a little side point. I think we can get more into the homophobia, like maybe more robustly mm-hmm. later. But like something that you know, Friedan's distrust of lesbians in the movement was partially about like messaging and publicity, right? She's like, yes. other people don't like lesbians. They don't, I, I don't want them. We can't let the brand of this get corrupted right. somehow. And, you know, we need to yes. be emphatic about our uh, love and devotion to men, etc. But there was also a sense that like, and you know, you still see this, some, candidly, I still see this sometimes in like straight feminist responses to lesbian lives. They're like, well, what are you even really complaining about? Like your life is different. You don't deal with men the same right. way. And the fact you don't have relationship problems <laughs> uh, or like you don't deal with gender because like it's not in your right. like as if gender doesn't exist within a lesbian relationship. Like I have horrible news for Betty Friedan. But like there's this reality that wasn't being really grappled with, which is that when you're in a system where a lot of professional opportunities are close to women, where educational opportunities are very narrow for women, the lesbians are housewives. They are raising children. They are vacuuming the floor. And they are reading at the time the, you know, secret lesbian periodical, the latter, in their, you know, closets, hiding it while their kids are at school. And I know this because women wrote to the latter, the lesbian magazine, saying that they were doing that. So there was this idea that lesbians weren't really dealing with this whole spectrum of gendered indignity the same way that straight women were. And it's just a historical, like they were all having to do that. Mm, right. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Plus, I mean, if, imagine if they did go to a workplace. It's not like patriarchy takes a, it's like, oh, you're a lesbian. Well, sorry, we'll we'll switch off the patriarchy now. Uh, <laughs> not, not to worry. <laughs> 
I was thinking about the structural side too, like the right. number of lesbians who like did divorce their terrible husbands only to lose custody of their kids as soon as they tried to move in with their girlfriends or whatever. They're not ugly people, Harge. Sorry. <laughs> right, right. I know I this is a slight digression, but I just watched a fun Phil, we're just like going through Cape Lanchette's uh, philosophy. <laughs> I mean Julianne Moore? I mean, I think we could do this, but I was thinking of a really great documentary on HBO I just watched recently called Nuclear Family by Rai Russo Young. It's so good. Rai had lesbian mothers who raised her and her sister in the 80s, and they had a lawsuit advanced against them by the sperm donor who wanted to claim paternity rights. And the documentary is excellent, both in its sort of like personal narrative of Rai's own family and in its historical context of like what happened to lesbians who tried to to raise children and one of them one of the things that happened all the time was they would try to divorce the husband and then lose the kids and like this is a horrible horrible structural disincentive to women leading full and yeah. fulfilled lives obviously i should i should mention that of course in gay parenting today you kind of there are things you don't permit yourself because you know that the straights could easily come for your kids and i mean mm. if, if roe falls mm. and obergefell falls i think that's gonna that's gonna become top of mind for a lot of gay and lesbian parents now i i did want to sort of i i don't know i found myself kind of defending Friedan on one point here and i think more you just kind of put your finger on why because there's the kind of the critique of this that like when she says women, it really means a very tiny subset of them. Yeah, this is like patient zero of universalizing right. women to meet to mean college educated, upper middle class, right. straight white women. But yes. it is, of course, like, and we're describing this all when we're talking about you know lesbian motherhood, for instance. It is the standard that by now is enshrined as law as the thing that we're all going to be measured against, right? Um, so I can sort of see why you would attack your attach your critique to that and say, look, even for the people that this is supposed to apply to, it is a fucking nightmare. What do you think is true for everyone else, right? Like, that, that's, to, on, on that level, I think that looking at wealthy, well-educated suburbanites, right, where like the government is like, be more like them, right? That's like every government policy, every social pressure, right, is always like, you know, it rewards middle classness, it rewards whiteness, it rewards suburbanity, right? Like think of laws like, I mean, Laura, I'm sure you can't let your kids walk outside by themselves because that's something that... You and I have talked about this. Yeah. Just like, when do you let your kids ride public yeah. transit? And you grew up in Europe in the 80s, so the answer is like maybe six years yeah. old, but like I could literally get arrested could get for arrested that. for yes, Why? Because it's, a, because it's a an urban... It, it reads as non-white. It reads as non-middle class, right? It means like you had that's shit a, to do. Yes. Um, so that's. Yes. I, I think, and in yes. that way, it is kind of interesting that like it's it's def almost almost defensible that she kind of this is such a pillar that we've erected, right? Um, this mm. fetish that we've made of it, and even that fetish is is noxious and brutal and violent. Imagine what it. And, and then we're holding everyone else up to this. I I don't know. Is is that a defense or I, I don't know. I I like that about it this time. I was like, you know, I get it. Mm. Of any group, it probably made sense to take a chisel to that kind of pillar, right? Because it was holding up just so much. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is a basis upon which you could salvage Friedan for a more like sort of robustly inclusive account of American womanhood and its oppressions, that might be it, right? It's like, look at the ways that this ideal, what she terms the feminine mystique, the sort of like complex of legal and cultural ideas about white womanhood, look at how it oppresses all women and right, look at right. the differences between the oppression of the women for whom it is accessible and additionally hellish and the ways that it oppresses the women for whom it is inaccessible and for whose inability to recreate it, uh, they are punished. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is this brings us a little yeah. bit to Bell Hooks, who is the, you know, has the big critique, probably the um, most famous Black feminist response to the feminine mystique. I'm not going to try and bring it up, but bo both, mostly what she says is like, who do you think is going to be taking care of your babies That's when thing. you guys all go into That's the workforce? The right. Yes, yes. But I think yes. there's a, I think they're both. I think both Friedan in prescribing more work, and it hooks in like more paid work for for these these white housewives, and hooks in sort of countering that actually just makes more domestic labor for women of color. Mm -hmm. I think they're both sort of like 
missing the forest for the trees a little bit mm. because what's really necessary is a reconceptualization of housework and childcare and a redistribution of those responsibilities, A, so that they're not considered degrading, yeah. and B, so that they're actually done by men right. as yeah. well yeah. as by women. That's right. And, you know, that feels impossible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is like something you come up against, particularly in the second wave and its, and its aftermath and the responses to it. Like, it feels impossible to get men to change their behavior. It feels much more possible to try and ask women to change their behavior. Like, we need to salvage the nuclear family. We need to salvage uh, heterosexuality. How are we going to do that? We're going to get women to change. If women could save heterosexuality and make it, like, healthy, (laughs) like, on their own, like, they would have done done it by now. Because they are trying. I think this is such an important paradigm shift and one that I think about all the time that has to do with, I think, like, what is the utility of white feminism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think part of the utility of white feminism that that we are trying to elucidate through Free Dan here is not only isolating on the problems that only affect women of privilege, right? It's not that those problems are so bad, although they are bad. The point here is that if those problems are so bad for the most resourced, most privileged people in the demographic, then we have to use that as a metric to continue investigating how bad things really are for everybody else. And I think the the issue of who domestic labor gets passed on to could not be more important here, because this is what the third wave has not solved. You know, we have not solved a way to offload that domestic labor onto anyone but poor women of color, right? And as you say, Moira, which is incredibly salient, we have not totally figured out a way to make men do their fucking fair share, you know? And like, I'm happy to live in a house with a man who does, but that's an individual, not a systemic reflection. And uh, as you're noting, I think we need a much broader reckoning with who domestic labor falls to than that. You're telling me you can't, we can't just hashtag girl boss our way out of this? <laughs> well, therapy, therapy and goop will also help, I think, <laughs> yeah. but, um, just get but that only egg. if we try hard enough and spend enough money. Also, I mean, I think, you know, and this is, I'm sorry, this is this might be an overly college professory kind of point, but there is a there's a weird status also of like the material in this book, in that like she's really not asking women to fix anything. She's asking them to change their minds, right? Like um, there's actually right, like there's an interesting line early in the book where she's like, you know, and I think Maura already alluded to it, right? Where she's like, well, even when colleges try to drive women into what we would today call STEM fields, she doesn't call them that. Women don't take them because they think it's going to uh, make them bad wife material, right? Mm-hmm. Which like, I, I think that's accurate to say that like patriarchy makes these standards part of our thinking to such an extent that simple ameliorative measures are not going to do it, right? But on the other hand, I think it's a little funny to say in 1963 that like, oh, women are staying out of science just because like they want to find a cool husband. Like it's also right, like, they're probably not going into science because of the very real expectations of violent and predatory behavior from and the very real blocks to advancements in those fields. And you're like, gee, if that's the future, then yeah, give me a microwave and a, you know, or I guess they didn't have microwaves, but like, you know, like a cool rotisserie oven and a, and a two-car garage any day, right? Like there is a kind of overemphasis on consciousness, which I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I want to say, I, I find that an interesting focus, but like to say, people might be acting rationally in a system in which power is so unevenly distributed, Mm. right? Like maybe in 1963, it really was the more prudent choice, right? Like, I don't know. I guess I certainly wouldn't have wanted to try to get a PhD or a job in 1963. I can, I can see some of where you're going. And I was thinking about, about who did, right? Like, I mean, hidden figures, right? Like African-American women did a lot of work like that because, you know, they didn't have the choice not to. Right. And so I think that there is a really interesting, I, I, I don't know, I made mean, it's a kind of a, a dumb point, but I do think that there is something here where like there are m- moments where the book doesn't come out and say, well, we have to change power structures. 
And I kind of get why, because I think it would be like the violent overthrow of the patriarchy would sort of be the only <laughs> logical extension. And because she's deeply entrenched in one, dude. She's deeply entrenched in the benefits of marriage yeah, and yeah. white womanhood and, and education yeah. and middle class. You know, like she yeah. she is not in some ways in a position to critique yeah. systems that she is benefiting so much from in some ways. I mean, you could, you could benefit and critique. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying she is compromised in her positionality in doing so. Well, no, but she's saying in some ways she's hard on herself too. I mean, she she kind of overstates how much oh, yeah. of a housefrau she is, right? She's not, right? And and yet she kind of casts herself as a part of the problem. But she's like, isn't there kind of, there is a kind of idealism here that, that, that she's saying, we have to change the way we think about this stuff. And then we can change mm-hmm. the material conditions. There's definitely an argument to be made here too. Like, unless the material conditions change, right? Title nine, right? Like, un- unless you can go into these jobs with a reasonable expectation that if the power structure comes down on you hard you have a way of pushing back however imperfect it's not it's not just someone's psychology that says like i'm not doing this like i'm, I'm out yeah well i will say that like Friedan in the feminine mystique she's really putting on her psychologist hat yeah she is and like she's taking that training that she got in grad school and really applying it to education to advertising to like extramarital affairs like every all these different aspects of women's unfulfilled lives outside of the feminine mystique her work was much more materially focused you know before she wrote this she was a left-wing like pinko journalist yeah she was a marxist yeah she was a berkeley marxist Marxist book and i guess that's what i'm yeah yeah this is actually a marxist book that wanted to sell some copies and was it written in 1963 so she was not she like she soft-pedaled the marks, but it's definitely there. But, you know, she founded, she founded the it. National Organization for Women because she was sitting right. at the Democratic yes, National thank Convention you. saying, yes. you guys aren't going to move your ass to put in employment protections for women. So she, like, I think it's a little unfair to just reduce her to, like, a reductive psychologist, although I do think in this book she does commit that sin pretty robustly. That's what I mean. I, I, was, I was really talking yeah, about the book. Yeah, it's weird because it just never comes up, like... Well, if you have your own money, you can make your own decisions and feel more like an adult. Like that's yeah, that is a that is an argument that has been made. I think it's being made very robustly now as women are forced back into the home. It was made by this Linda Hirschman, who was sort of writing as a, a, a defense uh, and sort of rehabilitation of the feminine mystique in 2005 with this pamphlet called Get to Work that I just reread that was very unpopular at the time. You know, so the the more strict materialist interpretation of the women in paid work argument has been made since, right? But it was, it's, yeah, you're right. It's very weird that it just doesn't come up. It's like, and, and, and at the time, there were laws specifically enforcing women's material dependence. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't say, exactly. like, hey, ladies, how fucked up is it that you need your husband's permission to get a credit card? You know, like... Yeah, to open a bank account. Yeah, it, it never... It just doesn't come yeah. up. And I, I do think one thing she may have been attempting was to capture the way that these sort of twin imperatives, like dueling imperatives to fulfilling the feminine mystique and the cultural model mm. of femininity mm. and motherhood conflicts in women's own mind, in the individual woman's mind, mm-hmm. with yeah. the drive towards independence. You know, like, Betty Friedan, she wrote this book. It was a huge, huge success. And that success destroyed her marriage. And her husband started beating her. And she was putting on makeup to cover up bruises from domestic violence before she went on TV. Wow to promote this book. I didn't know that. I know. I only learned that recently when I was prepping for this. Wow. It blew my mind. Like, she knew very intimately, like, look, this is something very difficult that we are asking, that I am asking women to do. And as much as I, like, as somebody who thinks that Marxist arguments tend to go over better, or materialist arguments at least tend to go over better in a um, sort of public-facing position i i share your frustration adrian i'm like just talk about the money just like talk about the money Mm -hmm. and the freedom it Mm -hmm. offers but there's this whole other complex of obstacles that are a lot harder to tease out and i think she had to have a great degree of courage to try you know for all of her failures oh god yeah no 
I am so interested in the role of materiality here, and I am also very interested in a discussion that does not only, like, decry Friedan for, like, what she failed to see. Like, I think it's really fucking important to note that this book led to now, led to Title IX, you know? Like, that is a very demonstrable material track record that is still important, right? So, like, I don't want to fail to credit that. I, mean, I guess given that track record, it is so interesting that it, it, it as, as Maura is saying, it soft pedals it so much. Well, so this is also what I'm interested in. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I am interested in the nature of this book, like the craft of this book. One of mm-hmm. the things about this book is that it's very, it is by educated women for educated women, right? Like, this book could be called kind of highfalutin. It's heavily researched, it's relying on research like this is not i hate the term beach read but you know like this is not a light read right and i'm curious about that craft choice like that is a craft choice intended to reach a specific demographic of educated white women and i'm thinking of something that audrey lord wrote this was published in 1980 but i want to say it was probably written before that where she's talking about how poetry is the working woman's craft And she writes, recently a women's magazine collective made the decision for one issue to print only prose, saying poetry was a less rigorous or serious art form. Yet even the form our creativity takes is often a class issue. Of all the art forms, poetry is the most economical. It is the one which is the most secret, which requires the least physical labor, the least material, and the one which can be done between shifts in the hospital pantry, on the subway, and on scraps of surplus paper. Over the last few years writing a novel on tight finances, I came to appreciate the enormous differences in the material demands between poetry and prose. As we reclaim our literature, poetry has been the major voice of poor, working class, and colored women. A room of one's own may be a necessity for writing prose, but so are reams of paper, a typewriter, and plenty of time. And I think that's really fucking salient here. You know, like Friedan wrote a room of one's own type of book, you know, and I think it's important to bring in Audre Lorde and sort of the counter narrative here of what forms and materials do actually reach poor working women of color. It's not the feminine mystique and that's not new information. But I think it's an interesting dimension to bring into a craft discussion of this book. That was actually my instinct as to why the materialism is so underplayed here Mm. i kind of feel like she's trying to do simone de beauvoir for the united states right yes which is of course like that's a phenomenological account and like and and it it does have that kind of feel to it and i do think you know to play devil's advocate against my own sort of observation here right like imagine if it had been about like very bold to play devil's advocate in this room adrian but you are well there's a there's (laughs) a um there's a version of this imaginable that is just about the nuts and bolts of how to run a household, right? Tips and tricks. Since Aristotle, right, the things that are of the household are gendered, right? It would be, in some way, the thing that projects outside of the household is the thing that's political. Oh, yeah. Of course. It's very clear why she was trying to write like men. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but also, like, in some way, it prevented her from naming the thing that, like, you know, I do think that stands behind this book, which is, as Maura points out, that, like, there is a mindset at work here. There's a mystique at work here, but there's also financial laws, labor laws. There are, you know, this, you know, this is a legal regimen that creates these dependencies, even if people are perfectly aware that labor in the home is unequally distributed, et cetera, et cetera. There's very little they can do about it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the mandate to work here feels so, and I'm curious if you guys agree with this, to me it feels so directly responsive to the rest cure of the 1920s and 30s being the prescription mm-hmm. for like, quote unquote, hysterical women. Like, I feel like there's a mandate here, like, get up out of bed, ladies, you can use your brains. Does that feel related to you guys or am I making too big a jump? Isn't there a Christian influencer who has like a... Clean your no, like they, who does like clean your room or something like that? She's like a unfuck your habitat. It's Jordan Peterson, the guy who I no, think no, but there's this, but there's a woman who does does something like that too. Uh, <laughs> a lot of recommendations to clean your room. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> there was a push, and you see this sometimes in like '90s third wave thinkers too, of like women as being unfragile. We are capable of mm-hmm. robust mm-hmm. intellectual yes. labor. We are capable of uh, greater physical feats than we are given credit for. And we are capable of handling, you know, men's sexual yes. overtures. And there's 
there's a way in which these like professions and like hailings of women's strengths can actually in practice tend to downplay the realities of, of inequality and injustice as they're, as they're faced. I see this a lot in responses to me too, but I do think that what you're tapping into Laura is that some of those tendencies may have originated with Ferdan and Ferdan advocating for a more robust life in which women's capacities is not to, you know, smilingly suffer all the aggressions of misogyny, but to mm-hmm. live as complete participants in the public world. Yeah. I have a question for you both. Would this be a book that you recommend in 2021? Like, would you give this to a student? Would you give this to a friend? Like, why or why not? I mean, I am a little bit on a soapbox about this, but I think that feminists should, like committed feminists, people who want to study the way gender has operated in this country, I think they should do the reading. I think we should be reading a book like this because it's one of the most important nonfiction books mm-hmm. of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. It's historically important and there's a it's lot historically that important. makes sense about the evolution of the feminist movement that doesn't make sense if you haven't read it. Mm-hmm. But also there are things that I find surprisingly salient. Sure. Like when she's writing about Margaret Mead and the sense mm-hmm. of you know, femininity and domesticity and these like very restrictive, like retrograde modes of maternity being sort of rendered myth, like almost mystical through the lens of anthropology and these like imagined pasts. You know, there are moments of that chapter that are wildly racist Mm. that I sort Mm -hmm. of just kept Mm -hmm. drawing like little exclamation points in the in the margins. But there were also a lot of moments that reminded me of like health influencers mm-hmm. who, yeah. uh, like, I think you can draw a straight line from mm-hmm. the observations that she makes here about, like, quote-unquote nature and, like, quote-unquote natural femininity to, like, you know, the crunchy granola anti-vax moms on Instagram. Yeah. They're drinking from the same well. And having her framework mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to navigate that, like, feels helpful, even if many of her observations are sort of, like, blinkered and very much of a different time. Yeah, and, and the fact that the mystique, I mean, this is the powerful part of the mystique, right? That you will fall short of it, that there's a kind of satisfaction promised by it that it can never deliver. And that does make me think about like, you know, um, you know raising an infant mm-hmm. at the moment, right? Like the powerful messages that, and I mean, I'm receiving them as a man, but I understand they're mostly intended for mothers, right? Where it's like, we're always doing something wrong, right? Like we're always buying something that like is like, is now free of this other thing. And we're like, oh shit, have we been giving her this other thing this entire time? And you Google it and you're like, it's probably nothing. Like there's like one weird study from the seventies that says like, you have a slightly elevated risk of Parkinson's or whatever, right? Like you're like, that's not a thing, but like, they're like, it's now free of this. And like, have you monster been giving the stuff with it to your kid for the, right? Um, and, and for like the last 10 months and like it it's just a way that like the, the kind of the amount of fuckery involved in, in, in these kinds of ideals and the way they they as as, as more is saying like the way they get operationalized in our culture right the way we you know the, the way we are always given something more to feel bad about in in these kinds of performances uh, whether it be at work, uh, whether it be, mm-hmm. be in, in, you know, child raising, et cetera, et cetera. That to me, that that's something that this book keys into really beautifully, precisely because it does study the people who ought to be one with the ideal, right? Who've reached it. But it turns out it fucks them up too, right? And you're like, oh, mm. because it's bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because it's just, you know, it's meant to make you miserable, not because it's meant to make you happy when you attain it. Like, that was never the point. And it's the graduating class of Smith College that can tell you this, right? I So that would be my, I, I think I, I'm, I'm exactly along, thinking along the same lines as, as Moira, that like, that's the part of this. The psychic operations here that really makes this, this is an exciting book. Um, when you move away from psychology, when you move away from the white upper class, it becomes a lot more blinkered. And there are other people who've spoken more interestingly, and including Friedan herself, I think, who've written more interestingly about the same issues. But on this, I think this book is still, you know, pretty explosive. And and I would I would be happy teaching this to my at least portions of it to my students. Maybe maybe Xerox <laughs> mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. a couple of pages here and there. Or not Xerox around them and talk about them frankly in the way sure. in the way that like I often credit Germany for doing of like not 
papering over its faults and shortcomings and talking about those as part of the historical record too. Obviously, I agree with both of you that I think this is like a really important historical text, even in its flaws and shortcomings. But like, Adrian, as you were talking about parenting, it evoked my blend of like pride that I managed to get through this interview with no interruption from my child and then guilt about wondering what the developmental experts would say about like whatever the hell my child has been doing on a tablet for the last hour. I don't know, you know, <laughs> that oscillation never stops. Everything that will be wrong with him will be your Directly fault. Directly mine. Yes. Traceable back to me and my failings. Yes. I'll say like something that I appreciate about being able to grapple with this text and with Ferdinand's life more broadly is like noticing how many times she has contradicted herself over the course of her career and how many times she changed her mind. Mm -hmm. I feel like we sort of give yeah. less, a little bit less cultural permission to feminist thinkers to be uh, like expansive and flawed and wrong about some things. And maybe we do to people writing in other traditions. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, there's a lot about this that is retro and offensive and even hurtful. There's a lot that it's not good for. It's just not useful for understanding large swaths of large parts of American womanhood. And also for what it is worth, yeah. it is worthwhile. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, I, I couldn't have invented this myself. I just got a notification that my groceries are on the doorstep, like defrosting <laughs> slowly. So that is my domestic call out. That's my cue. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Big hearts to all of you. you. Bye, team. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.